All right. And now I'm out of breath. Okay. <laughs> you bent you over. two feet. I know. <laughs> you did one squat. <laughs> I did. I did do one squat. Steve Byrne, how the hell are you, man? Good. good. Thank you guys for having me. Dude. Oh, thank you so much for it's doing this. It's been so long since we've... I know. I haven't no. seen you in hours. This one's mine, yeah? Yeah, it is. Dude, I was just walking in, mm-hmm. and it's like... Because we do these at the cellar from time to time when we're lucky enough to do it here. Yeah. And uh, it's like every single comic that we talk to mm-hmm. makes fun of the Rio, like how shitty it is and yep. everything. And it's great. But I'm walking in and the locals reward promotions thing is up. Oh, Dude, everybody is getting a toolbox. It's the best. It's like everyone's like, hey, go fix something inside the Rio. There's like yeah. thousands of people walking <laughs> with a toolbox. Just repairing right the Rio. Yeah, right just now. like <laughs> changing light bulbs, fixing door handles. I was like, of course the Rio gives out toolboxes. I was in, um, God, I was at Harrah's years ago when, was it the improv that was there? And Colin Jost was with me and he was opening. And this is before he was on, on Weekend Update on SNL. Yeah. And he gets up on stage. This is the first night. He's like, yeah, I'm in the Mardi Gras Tower, which is aptly named because it does look like uh, New Orleans post-Katrina. <laughs> <laughs> Management saw him as like, come here, come here. No. He got, he got, yeah, he didn't, he didn't do that anymore. Wow. wow. Yeah, I thought I always thought that's such a great, dude. Great that's line. a great <laughs> joke. Yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> well, you were inside the Rio at the beautiful Comedy Cellar. Steve Byrne is here with us. You're, you're a gentleman. Can I just say that? Uh, you well, are a gentleman. You. Well, thank you. You stopped your podcast because you're so busy, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. But did have, have you grown up with like people calling? Wow. Steve Byrne is such a gentleman, such well, a nice I, man. I, I, uh, I, I've heard him pretty well-mannered. I think my father was a disciplinarian when I was growing up with just every time we went out anywhere, anytime like waitress, store, whatever, say hello, hello, say thank you, thank you. You want to say please, please. So it, just, it was just drilled in my head, and I think that I think when you're given that conduct and then also taught lessons when you're a waiter, because I think a waiter is the most difficult, it's the most humbling experience as an occupation. I think once you have that, you understand yeah. the other side of humanity. So I think it, it just yeah. like, I, I just think anybody could be a waiter. Anybody could, you know, I just try to be respectful. Right. I think it's just human nature. But I think most, some people don't, I guess. But I, I try to. Is being a waiter like being a cop, like you just see the scum Constantly of the earth. I mean, because I've never worked in it's like the Vietnam of customer service is what it seems like a little bit. Yeah, but waiters don't like take a salt grind or like a pepper grinder and beat black people. So uh, I would say point. probably not. But I, I think it's just you just get treated like shit. You have the uh, you know you're in this position where you can be absolutely treated like shit by people that yeah. get power trippy for some reason or another. And I was a waiter from the time I was like 16 until it was my last job. I was uh, 22 maybe. Yeah. That was the last wow. time I had a, a, a real job. Really? A that was it? Yeah, the waiter. I mean, and then you went full-on comedy? Full-on comedy. Yeah, oh, my second you, time man. I was ever on stage. Well, I always say this. Like, the first time I was ever on stage, it was like the first time I had sex. It was, it was very quick. I cried immediately afterwards, and I couldn't wait to do it again. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I always describe it. And I was just, like, hooked, you know? Yeah. And then the second time I did it, there was a guy named Roger Paul who's still in the business, and he's a... Uh, it was a booking agent at the time of like the tri-state area, but but the country in general, in terms of like you know like MC feature acts and all that stuff. And he was in the crowd at New York Comedy Club and saw me, gave me his card. He said, "You got to call me." I said, "Okay." So I called him like uh, two or three days later, and he set up a meeting. 
And he said, I want to represent you. How long you've been doing this? I was like, uh, that was my second time. He's like, your second time? Are you kidding me? He's like, he's like, we're working together right now. I was like, okay. And within like six months, I was able to kind of quit my job and go on the road and make, you know, gro- I was definitely groveling, but I was, I was getting by. I would wow. say that way. Yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. amazing. Yeah, I know. That's, that's your like, second time. Yeah. Lucky, lucky, lucky. Savant. Well, I, I won't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> it's high prey. It's it's a different level, but yeah, I, I just got I, I, right place, right time was one of those things, you know. Yeah, but still, that's incredible to to sit there and pack in what you know from the time of your sixteen years old to go off and venture. How did your father, that imprinted be a gentleman, into you? Take oh, you're going off to do comedy. Um, yeah. My folks were always supportive, very supportive. You know, for. A few months, especially when you're starting off in New York City, there's the bringer shows. So you bring two people, two paying customers, and you get five minutes. And every week for about three months on Saturdays, they were my two paying customers. Uh, every really? week, yeah. Oh, so was, that's uh, amazing. That's great. That was great. They sat through a lot of fucking garbage. I mean, a lot of they sat through two, two and a half hours, sometimes three hours, just like the worst comedy imaginable. And then. And then me. <laughs> so if you if you like see me and you think, oh, I fucking can't stand Steve Byrne, imagine 1997, 1998 Steve Byrne. It was fucking awful. Bad, bad, bad. Oh, that's great. I did the same thing. I remember the uh, the bringers in, in New York, and my parents lived in uh, close to the Philly suburbs or whatever, so I did the same thing. I would tip, but mine was like, dude, it got to the, the point. commute. Yeah, oh, commute. and I, it was like I think it was like five or six people I had to bring. So I was oh. like, I would go down there, and I, I can't remember the club now. I might have been Broadway Comedy Club, and Airlines? I get down there, or yeah. I think it was Broadway Comedy Club at the yeah. time. And I go down there, and uh, my parents are there, my brother, and they're like, "Oh, you need like you know whatever more guys." So I swear I bought like this homeless dude like a pretzel or something, and he came and sat down <laughs> and was like one of my people. So I go up on stage and like, dude, that's uh, crazy. Yeah, and yeah. you right, enjoy it was the show. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. He was, they, when they woke him up, he said he wasn't sure where he was. But. Thank you, Sally. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. And like, and I was like, I mean, I wasn't very good. I mean, it was like, I mean, you know, my fifth time going on, on a stage yeah. or like that. And nobody is at that time. Yeah. Right? And, and, but it was still, it was like, it was, a, it was a crazy experience to think back that you had to actually bring people with you or else you sure, couldn't yeah. even like talk, you know, yeah. on stage or whatever. I mean, either way, whether you're a bringer or present day, you're headlining, you're still Trying to get people to pay to come see you. Yeah, you know, exactly. is, that's a good point. You're trying to convince people that you're worth paying money for to come yeah. watch yeah. you talk. Actually, yeah. now you think about it, like the open mic days aren't that bad because there's only five or six. Now. Yeah, it's like it's true. you got to get a few hundred. So, <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. I, I got to go back to the circuit. I <laughs> the expectations have gone way up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about everything because uh, I mentioned you mentioned earlier. We were talking earlier that you put sure. the podcast on hold because yep. you have so many irons in the damn fire right now. Yeah, we have. Uh, you have two movies coming out. One's dropping on Monday. I'm, I want to put this podcast up today, too, so sure, we, can, okay, we yeah. can put it up there. Because I know you have the Amazing Jonathan documentary that you were working on. That's coming out Monday. Yes. And that is awesome. Documentary, and then you have a, like a feature film coming yep. in. How, what was harder to direct? Well, they're both difficult in different regards. Um, <laughs> um uh, well, the feature, it, it, it's so much more, 
you know, when you're doing a doc, I guess, like, and you're setting up an interview with Jonathan, for example, right? And you know you have five to six hours to interview Jonathan. I knew the story I wanted to tell. I can envision it. So I wasn't, like, searching for what my documentary was going to be. It was like, I know exactly what this is going to be. It's about getting to know him. It's about getting to know how these two got to know each other with Joel and Jonathan. And then it's exploring that relationship from there forward and how the relationship has impacted their lives and Jonathan's present state and how that's still affecting the, the relationship. But I always saw, no matter what happens, whether Jonathan dies on stage, which was a strong possibility, or whatever, the, the, sh- the, um, the film was going to end in this wonderful montage recollecting their lives together and stuff. So I, I just knew that from the jump. Uh, so, it, it, you, you know, when you're doing a documentary, it's, it's knowing the, the right questions and leading them to the answers you want to hear or hope to hear. And like, for example, in the documentary, Jonathan and Joel are both very inhibited. They're very recluse. They're not emotionally available. Um, I'm, I'm like my heart on my sleeve. I, you know, I'll cry at commercials. Like my dad cried at my father's funeral, my grandfather's funeral. That's the only time I saw him cry. My kids have seen me cry Open the night of Force Awakens. <laughs> I mean, like a dog chow commercial. It's, it's so fucking pathetic. I'm such a fucking soft pussy, but but I knew exactly what I want to ask these guys. And so, for an example of like getting them to to dispel something or emote somehow, I was I was flying out to Vegas to um to talk Jonathan about something and pick up uh, um all his archival footage. That needs to be processed, like old tape of HBO and stuff, and you got to get that process converted so it looks better, high quality. And on the way, I was reading this article on my phone, and there was this exercise that people were doing where you'd write a letter to somebody significant to you, and instead of delivering it to them, you'd knock on the door and you say, "Can I read this to you?" And the impact of someone actually reading something emotional to you. Um, or significant, like, thank you for X, Y, Z. You've been a big part of my life, X, Y, Z. Like, that exercise really brought people together. So I asked Jonathan and Joel, I said, could you please partake in this exercise? Um, I'd like you guys to each write a letter to each other. And before our last show at Foxwoods, because there were three shows that we kind of encapsulate in the film, before we do that, um, would you guys read these together to each other in the green room? And Joel was on board. Uh, immediately he's like absolutely and jonathan being jonathan didn't do it until like the last day and i kept asking him i kept letting him know it's it's happening it's happening and he kind of put it off put it off and then he actually came through and he wrote something and that is if that was not in the film i don't think it would have as strong of a resonance in terms of their relationship together you know so that's something you you got to kind of Think how do I how do I get this out of these guys? Yeah, so exactly. That's something you don't see in the film, like me crafting this and manipulating somehow. Yeah. In a, in a good way, not like being deceitful. Um, so, the, one of the biggest parts of like doing the documentary is getting all the archival footage, getting old pictures, getting old videotape, getting everything. He did a Vicks VapoRub commercial that he filmed in Australia, and that was kind of like the impetus to their relationship between Joel and Jonathan, because Joel's father was an ad exec. Getting that was a pain in the ass, right? Because Jonathan's kind of like a hoarder, but he doesn't know where anything is. So I got to sift through all these VHS tapes <laughs> to find his fucking v- Vicks VapoRub thing. And then I got to get that thing converted to, to into high. So it's just like a time-consuming film. But it's a passion project. And when you're doing it, 
it doesn't matter if it takes 48 hours because when it's in the film and you know you have it, instead of him just talking about it, you visually see it, like, that was fucking worth it, you know? Yeah. 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 Now, when you do a feature film, you know, the documentary, it, you know the story you want to tell, at least I do. So when you're crafting the in the edit, you know exactly how you want the film to be distilled and, and play out. It's kind of like you're assembling the puzzle, right? But a feature film, all in, it's probably like two and a half, three years from the minute we're 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 starting something till like it's done and it's it's a really long excruciating emotionally physically investing process because you write the script there's the script you write uh the film you want to write and then there's the film that you actually the day you're there you're filming everything right and it's absolutely stressful because you got we were doing 12 pages a day and a normal film does six to eight so we were under the gun due to budgetary reasons we had i think 19 or 20 days to film this thing and, wow. you know, you got 12 pages to do. It's like, we're not doing 15 takes. It's not Stanley Kubrick. It's like, right. you got fucking four takes, so you better fucking rock this shit. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, right. And making the days was the most significant thing that I had to be aware of every day. So I was stressed. And, and when you're doing a feature film, like when you're doing the doc, it's just like, you're just filming shit. And, you know, you're, yeah. you're getting things. With this thing, with, with a feature film, you got a, a, a costume designer, production designer, you got the lighting, you got the camera guys all asking you questions every second of the day. Even during lunch, you're constantly just grinding. So it's 10, 12, 14 hour days. And you're there at five in the morning. You're leaving at midnight. And you're absolutely zapped. So that's just the filming process. Then the edit, there's the film that you think you're making, right? And then you do these test screenings and you're learning what you think is really great and wonderful. The audience just doesn't give a shit about. And they're tracking a story. Even though these, it's, it's very similar in stand-up where, you know, I do this professionally. I, I think I know how to craft a good joke. But the audience has no experience with this. But collectively, this whole room of people will tell you, whether that's good or not. And somehow, I don't know why it's the same with the film process. They've never written a script. They don't understand story, but they sniff out the truth in terms of the story beats. Like, it's dragging here in this scene. And you'll hear that resonant over and over again. You're like, well, we got we to gotta figure out what's dragging in the scene. And through much process and deliberation and all these creative heads getting together with Vince Vaughn and Peter Billingsley, the editor, Sandra Gronowski, and myself, eventually you kind of, like, safe-cracker it and you tinker it, and you, you talk about it, and you figure out how to problem-solve these things. So, you know, in conclusion, I would just say that with a feature film, the script is almost like a grocery list. The film is grocery shopping, and then the edit bay is actually cooking the dish. Oh. And then the end result is hopefully a well-crafted dinner, five-course dinner. Uh, that's the best analogy I can come up with. I don't know if anybody's done that before. I don't think I've ever heard that before. But it, it, I think it, it it should be that way. I like <laughs> it. It's, I like it's, it. it's a good way to describe so, it. I know because I know Ron Howard does like screen testing. He f- screen tests his films to like death. Like people are like, okay, Ron, we don't we don't have any more money to show a fresh audience your film. To te- you know what I mean? I sure. know he does. Yeah, it's like everyone's seen it already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're like, dude, we're trying to make some cash yeah. off this, you know? But did you find that to be the most... Because as a comedian, when you're sitting here, like you just said, and you feel the beats, you feel when a joke hits and you feel when it flops. Sure. You can tweak it for the next audience that come in. Did, was that the most kind of nerve-wracking part? Because I know when we talk to all these other comics that are sitting on their film set, mm-hmm. they're always saying, 
oh my god, it's the worst. You do a scene, you don't know if, if it's funny. And you go back to your trailer for six hours. Yeah, there's no instant gratification like on stage right, where you yeah. say something, you laugh, okay, that's good. You yeah. know, in a movie, you gotta wait till somebody watches it. And Was that the most stressful part? Waiting for those, like, okay, laugh here, you bastards. Laugh here! Um, kind of a thing. I don't know that it's stressful. It's Look, when it works, it's rewarding. When it doesn't, you just think, okay, how can I salvage this? How can I make this work? Um, but, you know, the difference is like, you know, with a comic, obviously it's just that instant gratification of getting that laugh. Yeah. You just want the laugh. When you're doing a film, it's like, of course you want the laugh, but it can't be at the expense of the narrative, of the story. Sure. The story is paramount. So there's so many things like going into the film, there's like two scenes I fucking like loved, absolutely loved. It's not going to be in the film because it's just a speed bump and they're both big laughs but one of them got really really condensed and edited the hell out of so it's barely in it and then the other just got cut and i'm i you know i fought for it and we tested it and it's funny too because sometimes you'll do a scene where it, it could be something funny but it could absolutely have an effect on the next scene or the prior scene or somebody's coda like like one character's coda could be like you know i'm the good guy and because of someone else's behavior it could affect or it could affect what that person was distilling to somebody else or or communicating to somebody else and it could take their scores down based on it's really fucking crazy but the audience for some reason knows everything they just pick it up and they know story and they've never read you know, Greek mythology. They've never read Joseph Campbell, who George Lucas credits with the story beats of, of Star Wars. They've never read any of these things, but they know when a story's being held up. They know when a story pays off. They know when it's bullshit. They know when a laugh is contrived. They know when you're forcing humor. And these are all things I've heard, by the way. So. <laughs> <laughs> we're going over the common cards. Yeah, uh, yeah. But we're, we're towards the end of the edit process, and the great news is that all those things help. And you know, I, 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 I try out jokes nightly, and when it doesn't work, I'm not emotionally affected as sure. I was when I was younger. So I think that prepared me, too, for these test screenings of, like, hearing people say, oh, I didn't like that part. It's like, I'm not hurt. I don't, I don't care. I, I just want the film to be great yeah. at the end of the day. Well, there's a certain seasoning, I think, to comedy that gets you to a point where you're, you know, you're, if you, you were thicker skin. Yeah, if you weren't a comic already, it might be like, a, oh, shit, and then you might overcorrect something in the movie that you thought, sure. you know, or not, or not leave something in that would have been good or whatever it is because you overreact to the comments people make about Absolutely, yeah. And, and look, having Vince Vaughn and Peter Billingsley along yeah, is doesn't pretty hurt, right? good. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there have been times where you know, I feel very passionate about. I'm like, no, this has got to be. But, you know, I got to say like nine times out of ten with Vince, he's absolutely he's just so he's an intelligent guy. He's, he's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. Just in I mean, he consumes everything. He's like a sponge, you know, watch videos and read and constantly taking things. But with story, he's really, really good. And it's not something you would anticipate from seeing the guy from Wedding Crashers, you know, but yeah. He's really into Greek mythology. He's really into storytelling. And he's he's just great in the edit bay. He knows how to craft a joke. He knows how to craft a comedic scene, obviously. But he understands the arc, the the entirety of the arc in terms of the story you want to tell. Yeah. The intention. He makes sure that yes. he doesn't lose the intention yes. from start to finish kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I feel like a lot, especially comedy, because you go after the joke, 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 joke. You're like... But what about the plot, 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 plot? And it's sure. kind of like, you know, this, and it kind of twists in the wind kind of a thing. A lot yeah, of for comedy. an example, like um, in, in the film, Bill Burr plays um, Jimmy O. Yang's boss. And so the day we were filming, 
I'd say when you see the opening act when this film comes out, 90 to 95 percent of what you'll see was written. Okay, five um, percent with all these comics involved was improv, and the really the five. I, I'd say four percent of that is just Jimmy, Alex, and Cedric stand up on stage. The only stand up I wrote was for Will in the final scene when he uh, he's got to prove himself. He gets one more shot this weekend. Um, after kind of blowing it. So that's the only stand-up I wrote in it. And that was the most nerve-wracking. I was in a test audience because I'm like, if this fucking doesn't work, I'm fucking done. I mean, it's the emotion. It, it's, the, the, everything in the film drives to that, to that set on Sunday Jeez. night. If wow. it doesn't work, I'm fucked. So the writing better be good. And I remember we were about ready to film, and Peter Billingsley's like, did you write this stuff yet? Did you write it yet? And I'm like, yeah, I kind of have it. He's like, you better fuck. You can't just write. Will does comedy. <laughs> like, fuck yeah. So I wrote the set out and um, thank fucking God. It like actually works. It's one of the bigger laughs from the stand up, you know, yeah, uh, in the film, which thank God it, it, it worked. Yeah, that was that I was very scary doing that's that. That's great. Yeah. Go, go ahead. No. Is there any like. Trepidation. If you're used to comedy and you're used to doing like, or like, I, I always say this, but like, if a boxer had to play a team sport, or you know, somebody's used to doing mm-hmm. it solo, and I know I have to work, you know, on a radio show working with a team of people or whatever. Is there any, is there anything that like an adjustment period doing that with movies and stuff like that? Because you're so used to being a comic, where like you say whatever you say and it's all on you and that's it. And, you a lone gun, yeah. I mean, look, I like being by myself. I like working by myself. I like you know. Just calling the shots as you know, as a comic on stage by yourself. But when you're part of a collective, it is fun. It is refreshing because I grew up playing hockey. I was always on a team. Uh, I miss that camaraderie. So to get to be part of a team, and I think uh, my experience in Sullivan and Son was was a lot of fun in terms of a leadership role and distilling like a good presence on on set and a, sure. some warmth and like you should be having fun when you're doing this stuff, right? Especially when you're doing a film about comedy. This is not. Some you know it's not Schindler's List. It's not heavy. <laughs> it's not depressing. Platoon. Yeah, yeah. So let's have some fun. Yeah. Um, so I think that was there was a good lesson from Billy Gardell, who was on, on Mike and Molly. He he said to me before the first day on set, he's like, everything you do will have a ripple effect on that set. So keep your head straight. The the fish swims from the head down. And oh, I was wow. like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah, you're right. So I never yawned on set. I never, like, I, I probably took to, to an extreme, but just trying to keep it fun. But look, I liked... I liked being a part of the creative process with Vincent Peter. I like being in the edit bay. And look, I love learning, too, because I've never done this before. But I didn't want to waste anybody's time either. So one of the things I did was I read everything I could before I directed this. I read Eli Kazan's uh, film about directing. I read, I literally read Directing for Dummies. So I would understand lenses, everything else. Um, I read everything I could. I watched uh, master classes from Martin Scorsese, uh, Warner Herzog, and Ron Howard. Ron Howard was the one I watched twice because his was the most. He, he just spoke in a very down to earth totally kind of manner, yeah. yeah, and he made it like very simple and accessible to understanding what goes on in a daily routine. But I'll tell you, all those things collectively that I did to prepare me. It's like it almost doesn't even help because when <laughs> right. you're you're literally just thrown. It's like a newborn being thrown into the in, in fucking water. It's like you sink or swim. So that's literally. It's like I, I don't have anybody to bitch. It's just me. So we got to fucking roll. Let's let's do it. So it w- it was fucking scary. It was nerve wracking. I'm almost done, but um, yeah, I think I'll do it again. Oh yeah, that, yeah. Would you the, do a doc again? Well, I'm doing a doc. I, I haven't really mentioned anything about this, but I'm doing a doc uh, for Comedy Central. 
because uh, in talking to Cedric about the Kings of Comedy, um, we're going to do something. It's called the Summit, and it's a, it's gathering all the Asian American stand up comedians for almost like a for dinner for five, where we're all kind of collectively talking about our experiences um, uh, of getting into stand up and entertainment in general. And hopefully being like inspiring or a lightning rod to the community, but to really anybody who's an outcast or a misfit. Because Asians, I think, are kind of like this invisible minority in, in, in the States. And we're going to do a live show together with some of the core group of it. So throughout the course, there will be a narrative where like these bricks of like, how would your family feel? That'll be one chunk. Um, what was your first big break? That'll be another chunk. In, interspersed with all the stand-up comedy. So it'll be a group of... Uh, People from an ethnic background that I feel doesn't get as much um, limelight as others. You're right about that because I talk about I actually talk about that on stage about how there's like no there's like a fat lobby there's like a people that get mad if you say something about black people you know what I mean yeah there's no like uh, like Asian because there's no know, outcry from the community no, there's no, no demand no. to be noticed and yeah. I think it's a very small group of people in the entertainment industry usually that wants it because. Uh, you know, it's like it's kind of like for years everybody's like, oh, we should have more Asians in the top forty, and then the K-pop, what is it, BTS, yeah, comes yeah, out, and it's yeah. like maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, you say that, and immediately I'm, I think of, I mean, I, I know, I like at least a handful of stellar Asian comedians. Yeah, maybe that stuff lately because. Back in the '90s, you didn't see that many of them, but I feel like more people are getting a, a shot at it. It was like now. Henry Cho, Margaret Cho, um, yeah. Steve Park was on a Living Color. You just missed Joe Coy this morning, by the way. He was walking in while you were walking out. Oh, he was. Yeah, Joe was there. He asked about you, actually. Fuck, I, he's somebody. It's just, it's just ships passing in the night every time with that guy. <laughs> yeah. I've never actually sat down and hung out with the guy. Um, we talked briefly about this film about him uh partaking and stuff but uh yeah I, I heard he's in town so i think there's a group of comics getting together tonight like kreischer and mark ellis and heffron so i'll, I'll reach out to him too and that'll be a uh, that'll be a healthy bar bill <laughs> i'm not fucking put my i'm not putting my card down tonight that's for sure not with kreischer around yeah, no, he's yeah. doing mirage he can fucking pay <laughs> not the fucking real i know the uh, Toolboxes walking around outside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're not doing that. The mirage. So I'm just the, fixing the escalator right now, <laughs> dude. That escalator is yeah. never functional. Oh, you know I think, I think it was last Smash summer they put the caution tape up, and I just got on it. Uh, Jeff was just reminding me. Uh, the PR man over there, Jeff. Yeah. He. Uh, <laughs> yeah, John over there. Well, we were coming down the uh, the escalator. It actually worked for the first time. I think since no. last summer. Right. Wait. Because when I came down here, and you guys all got here before me. Some fucker was walking up the broken one next to it. You oh, so it's the, broken again? The one going up is broken. Oh, the so one, the other side is broken. Okay. <laughs> the going so they fixed the one going down. Now the other one up is going. Oh, it's broken. And if there's one that's going to be broken, at least make it the fucking, you know what I mean, the other one. Yeah, I need. yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> fucking idiot. <laughs> well, great. I got to say this, because you're obviously a huge hockey fan. Yeah. Uh, are you watching any of the NHL? Or? To be honest, with you, I just haven't even had time. Really, I'm literally working nonstop, and this is like I, I was talking to my wife the other day. I'm like, man, I, I remember a time when I just did stand up. Yeah, just did stand up, and I thought I was working hard. And nowadays, it's like there, are, there, like I have all these podcasts to do next week um, to promote the Jonathan Doc. I haven't even had time to get back to everybody to confirm it. Like, what is today? Thursday? Friday. Friday. Today's Friday? Yeah. yeah. 
31st. I've had emails all this week. I just haven't had time to sit down and get back to all of them to like let them know, yes, I'll be there. Because Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I was in Pittsburgh filming all these pickup shots. And I'm getting up at five, like 4.30 in the morning to get sunrise shots, city shots, um, exteriors, interiors. We had to plan out this uh, will driving into Pittsburgh because there's a... There's this famous tunnel in Pittsburgh called the Link, uh, Four Pit Tunnel where y- you're driving from the airport, for example. It's just all woods. It's beautiful. It's green. It's lush. It's, you know, in the summer, it looks like Ireland. It, it's so green. It's overpoweringly green. And then you go through this tunnel, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's this gorgeous city in front of you with all these rivers. And, and it's this great kind of introduction into the city. And so we had to coordinate, like, me driving through it and this camera from up top on Mount Washington tracking me, almost kind of like the opening credits of Full House. Nice. You know, where they get them going <laughs> yeah. across yeah, the yeah, bridge yeah, yeah. and they expand into the thing. <laughs> so it's just me and my camera guy doing it, running it, like, two or three times and then going in the car and driving him, him behind me, following me as a tracking shot. And just all these things are, that are so time-consuming that you know you've got, like, 48 hours plus to get everything you can to make the film look aesthetically and environmentally better um, and it'll provide a little more production value in terms of making you feel like the film's taking place in Pittsburgh even though it's filmed in Brea, California. Was it really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the okay. old Brea Improv before they... So there was the old Brea Improv, Old Navy next to it closed so they opened a new Brea Improv that's much bigger, much nicer and... When we were getting the film, when we secured financing, I reached out to Robert Hartman. So there's this thing called the 30-mile zone, which is what TMZ is TMZ, after, right. Okay? Yeah, yeah. But you get tax breaks, tax incentives. If you film anything within 30 miles of this epicenter, wherever it's located in Los Angeles, okay? So I Googled all the improvs in the L.A. area. Hollywood's – we could never film in Hollywood. There's just no way because there's so much going on there. But I said uh, – Ontario, Brea, and uh, Irvine. Between those three, could we potentially film at one of those? So all of them were outside the zone except for the Brea Improv. The Brea Improv was 29.6 miles Get within I, the... Oh. So four-tenths of a mile away, I would have been fucked. But, <laughs> but I called Robert Hartman. I'm like, this lands in the 30-mile zone. Could we potentially film there? He's like, I have great news for you. We're actually moving to the new location in June... I'll keep it open for an extra month for you. You could film it there for... Um, I'm like, are you fucking How? kidding me? Wow. That wow. provided the impetus for us to drive towards a shoot date in, in uh, early... I think it was June or July. I forget which month we, we filmed. I think it was July. So we filmed in July, like starting July 1st. We had the club and went through it. And uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing because otherwise we'd have to shoot at like a comedy club at midnight until like 7 or 8 or noon the next day so just working night hours which would have sucked yes but we had access to it so thank god for robert hartman the and the improvs hey shout (laughs) out bray improv yeah for doing well and then upgrading and then for sure yeah yeah. that timing is like incredible yeah well i gotta say that uh love you as a comic can't wait to see what you're like as a director i i i think that you feel you're busy now i can't imagine what you know, because once people start seeing that you can wear multiple hats, and once people start seeing that you got chops in other places, yeah, yeah, that's like at a job where you're like, I don't know how to do that. Just so they don't yeah. ask you yeah. to do it. And shit. Greg's like, I don't yeah. know how to drive for a lift. Yeah. or I don't know <laughs> yeah. how to edit audio. I don't know how to uh, yeah, exactly. edit film. Yeah, don't don't ask me because yeah. he doesn't want more work. I feel like everyone's going to swoop in and and go. You know, hey, Steve Byrne. You know, look at what he's done. Well, and- I'll tell you the truth. You know, I had Sullivan and Son. That was something where I thought, as a comedian, you get your own show on the air. You could 
raise the stock in your name and hopefully people pay more attention to you because prior to that never had a development deal never networks are never knocking tapping me on the shoulder coming come on we got to do something with you never happened right so i wrote sullivan and son out of a reaction to that to give myself my own opportunity and it was because vince vaughn said you know you're, you're probably limited in your opportunities due to your aesthetic you know unless they come up with like a taekwondo river dance movie you're probably <laughs> fucked so write your own shit so i wrote sullivan and son <laughs> and then that got on the air, but it was like the summer show on TBS. So nobody gave a shit about it. Plus, it's a multi-cam. And because it's a multi-cam, all the prestige is with single cams, like 30 Rock and yeah. Parks and Rec. Those yeah, are the can you explain a little right? bit about the difference? Because I know a lot of people bring that up, and I don't know if a lot of people understand what the difference so is. So the difference is, is that if you film in front of a live studio audience, it's considered dumber, quote-unquote. I see. You know, even though you have, like, these great shows like Cheers or Friends that'll still yeah, resonate. all the big shows from back in the day. I all think. those critics still, they just dump on those because yeah. there's these single cam shows. So it, those are shows like 30 Rock and Parks and Rec. They don't make you out, laugh out loud. You go, oh, that's funny. That's funny. But you're not laughing, right? But like Big Bang Theory, you got to make them laugh. Otherwise, yeah. that joke sucks because it's a live studio audience. And if they're not laughing, then this episode's fucking dog shit. That scene's not going to work. That, that joke's not. So you got to get instant laughs. I think people dump on multicams because there are some bad ones for sure that bring down the prestige and quality of them. But there's some great ones, too. And I think Big Bang Theory, Mike and Molly, even Two and a Half Men, there are some great fucking jokes in those shows that don't get the credit they deserve because all the attention is given to these prestige single cams. Um, and, and that's kind of like the difference, and it's a little heartbreaking. So because I was associated with one, I believe because it was on TBS at the time, it was branded as like Tyler Perry's kind of home. It definitely hurt my career, and prior to, I'd wow. done every late-night talk show, and when I got the show on the air, I was only invited on one, and it was, Jay, it was, um, it was uh, Conan O'Brien's, uh, and I was forced to be on there, and he never had anybody else on the show after that um, from Sullivan Center. We're on TBS, and he wouldn't support oh, wow. our show, so it was really disappointing and depressing when the show ended after three seasons. I was so proud of our run. I'm proud of the show. The, the shows are fucking great because there's some great fucking jokes in it. Rob Long from Cheers, um, Dan Cohen and F.J. Pratt from Frasier, um, Howard Morris from Home Improvement. Like all these guys, we had ringers on our show and, and a plethora of other great writers. We had great writers and great jokes on that show. So I'm proud of it. Um, but that show got canceled and in 2014. And again, having the show on the air Nobody gave a fuck. Now that it's canceled, nobody definitely gave a fuck. So I, I was just like, I got to do something. And I just, as an exercise, I've never written a screenplay before, but I just wrote a script in my off time to just see if I could do it. And I gave it to my friend Vince Vaughn and he read it. And a month later, he was like, I think you've got something here, actually. And I was like, are you kidding me? He's like, no, I, I really think we can do this. And I was like, oh, Jesus. And he had me work on the script. So for another six to eight months, I would visit them on Monday. They'd give me notes. I'd take it on the road, road with me for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever, and I'd write it. I'd go back, and we did that process, and we beat the script into great shape, sent it out, got financing really quick. And when Vince told me we got the financing, it's like, we're going to be in pre-production in like two months, so get ready. Wow. And then it was just like, oh, shit, we're off to the fucking races. And I knew the stakes going into this because I have an hour special waiting, and... With all the hour specials being made and everything, every door has been shut. And they're like, no, it's Steve Byrne. We're not doing it. No, absolutely not. So I'm like, okay, okay. 
But I know you're saying no now. I have two aces up my sleeve, so I'm going to fuck you. I'm going to fuck you when you fucking say yes because you're going to be forced to because this film, everything's riding on this film for me. And I know what's at stake, and I know it's fucking great because we put the work into it, and it's not good. It's fucking great. And the comics, towards the end, we've opened the door, and they're like, it's the most authentic version of what it's actually like to be on the road, and it's entertaining. So I know what I have up my sleeve, and I knew what I needed to accomplish going into this, and knowing now coming out on the other end of like what's, what's there... I know the potential going forward, and I'm not going to fuck with it. And I, I know that when I'm at the after party for this fucking movie, the Jameson tastes a lot sweeter at the <laughs> after party when you got a lot of dirt underneath your fingernails. Yeah. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I love that we've just witnessed add another zero, Steve Byrne, to the next special. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, that's right. I'm going to fuck him. <laughs> I can't wait. Fuck him. Dude, I can't. Dude, I'm telling you, man. You, you so sold me. Excited. I'm like, I, I'm I so want to see it well, now. Because I'm pissed. It's like I'm pissed. Yeah, I get it. You know, there's like a chip on my shoulder. But the, the great thing about this industry is nobody owes you shit. Nobody owes me anything, right? But I knew I was always a hard worker. But I, I felt like, man, I... I like, I, I wasn't getting auditions. I wasn't getting... Just, like, nothing. It was almost like... I was like, did I say something about the Jews like Mel Gibson in my <laughs> right, sleep that right. somebody recorded? I have yeah. no idea what's going on. It, there was a point where I'm, I almost felt like I was getting blackballed because when I had a show on the air, I had a third-hour special, third season of Sullivan and Son, I couldn't get a manager. Like, no management company in Hollywood re- would... Re- I mean, all the big ones. Like, none of them would even meet with me. And right now, I don't have a manager. Like, I did everything... On my fucking own. Yeah. So it's like all these people have these prestige people backing them and shit. And just like I learned that it's like, well, yeah, I guess they'll make it easier, but you can still do it on your own, can't you? And so I, I, I just think, uh, you know, knowing I don't have management, it makes me work twice as hard. And knowing this film and everything, it's like I got to work fucking eight times as harder now because no one's telling me how to do this. Yeah, so I just yeah. got to do it. Right? I feel like that all the time. I guess, well, I'm super neurotic anyway about just like anything I do. I never feel like a, I don't know how to human, you know, I'm in a room with people and I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to say right now. I'm wearing the right hat. Like, you know, just yeah. chill. Yeah. And like I run on, I'm not saying you're saying you do this, but I run on hate. Like I openly run on hate, you know, right. like <laughs> fuck that guy. He told me that, you know, this guy told me I'm going to prove to you guys, you know, that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. And I can totally relate to this. And it's so funny because I think I told you this last time. You're also the guy that I was watching TV, watching the comedian on television. Mm-hmm. And that's, I just gotten laid off from a job and I was watching it and I was thinking about getting into something and I was watching you do comedy on television. And just, I don't know why, but it made me think like, I got to go do this. And I want to. He can do it. Fuck it. <laughs> no, it wasn't like that at all. It was just one of those moments. Yeah. You know, it was just like fucking. I gotta do something in my life. Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> I'm glad you made the decision. <laughs> and I went that night to an open mic. I swear to God, I got off the oh, couch and I went that night to an open mic. And I went and did it. Start doing comedy. And yeah. like, well, I think just, it's like ultimately that's that's what it's about, right? It, it's like you can. I, I like I don't run on hate. I just run on like what drives me is is a desire to like do something impactful. Yeah. It's like I, I watched this documentary on Gene Kelly and Gene Kelly was like a perfectionist, right? He was like and, and he got this reputation from people of like, ah, he's kind of like condescending. He just he just didn't have time to talk to somebody who didn't understand what he was trying to accomplish because very few people were willing to put in the work. Yeah. And I just want to work as hard as I can to hopefully have not not one thing like resonate, but like a career that goes, oh shit, he 
he really did do a lot and accomplish a lot in a short amount of time that was the career was impactful. So I've always been trying to look at the marathon of it all. Sure. And knowing that the clock's ticking now that I'm like 44, I have a little less time than I did in my 20s. But I also feel like when I was younger, I didn't I wasn't prepared to be a great comic. Like I was good in my 20s. And I was I was good in my 30s, but I wasn't like a great comic. And I feel like now, my 22nd year in stand-up, something clicked finally where I just thought, I think I'm a great comic now. Not like, you know, and, and I don't know that I can say that in terms of like ticket sales or anything because maybe this film will come out and help me. Maybe it won't. I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, but I just know for a fucking fact that all the work I put into it, the hour I've assembled and the crowd work I'm able to do – and anybody saying anything at any time, even last night with the fire alarm going off here tonight, last night, the fire alarm went off during oh, wow. my set, and the mics cut off, and I still <laughs> finished my set and got like half a standing ovation from these people no, in wow. here last night. And it's like it finally clicked for me my 22nd year in stand-up where I'm like, now I'm really great. Now I'm confident with the next hour that I get out there, I feel like... If they don't get it, then it's still on me. I still got to figure something out. But confidence-wise, I know the material I'm doing, the the hour I put together, it, it's definitely the best I've ever done for sure. So I'm excited for it. I, I, two questions, yeah. and I'll start with one. It's you mentioned legacy. Yeah, is that does you think that comes from your father? Or do you think where do you where I does this importance of legacy come from? Having kids, yeah, and knowing that my kids, I, I want them to be proud of of the work I've done and I know that when I wrote the script and and it, and I was told um, we secured financing I told my wife I'm like you know I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow I, I could get hit by a truck or whatever but this script is the best thing I've ever done in my life and my kids will read this one day or hopefully see it one day at the time hopefully see it and they can go I'm proud of my dad that's a really great story. And for me, like that meant more than anything. And I think like this new hour, um, this film, the documentary, the, the film I'm going to do after that, it's like all these things are things I'm thinking about where I just want like my family, my kids to be proud of it ultimately. But then I want like the comedy community to go, that's, that's pretty resonant. That, that's, that was pretty impactful. That, that does speak for us and does speak to the reality of pursuing your bliss, for example, in this film, of chasing your dream and giving up and going for it and all the all the inside baseball that goes along yeah. with it as well. So, yeah, yeah. I, and speaking of baseball, I, Ted Williams is the one that said, I want to, when I walked on the street, I want everyone to say that's the best hitter that I ever lived, you know, yeah. when they see him. And I think that's any genre. You want to be respected by your peers or, you know, have everybody right. just be like, oh, shit, this guy really contributed to this art or whatever it is. Yeah, and, and it's funny because in the film there's, you know – it slightly alludes to that because Will, the character of the MC, is very driven in, in the film. And the first half of the film, he's hanging out with the feature act. And the feature, I mean, <laughs> Alex Moffat does such a great job at portraying a road feature, you know, where he's all energy and he's, he's about partying. He's doing shots before the set. And he's absolutely hilarious. But he's nailing that type of comic that we all know, that guy that's there to fucking party, meet girls you know, uh, fuck on the weekend. And that's kind of his mandate. And hopefully at some point, maybe he'll pivot and turn into a better comic. Sure. But, but Will's introduced to this side of, the, of stand-up. But then when he talks to Cedric, the headliner, he kind of badgers him 
with like, hey, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And Cedric just distills it in a really, really simple way. You know, I wrote it that way, but it was just like, this is all you have to do. And I was like, really? And Cedric gives him what he needs to do to be a great comic. And Will makes that pivot from hanging out with Chris, and he gets serious, and he tries to, he tries to honor what Cedric told him in the film and fails miserably, but he tried. And then he gets to course. He's given another opportunity to course correct, and that's that stand-up set. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, you know, all three of those characters are me. You know, I was fresh-eyed, you know, didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I was Chris in the film. I was the guy that was just like, especially my New York years, I was there to, like, be a high-energy act and meet girls and kind of like, you know, I never did well in high school or college, so it's like I, I just want to, I just want to kind of party for a while, you know. <laughs> and then I got really serious about stand up, and I got, I was uh, when I was writing this, I was over the road, I was so fucking exhausted, nothing was going right, and so a lot of that bled into Cedric's character and distilling the information. So I couldn't have wrote this two or three, five years ago. I couldn't have wrote it ten years ago for sure, but I was at the right time in my life where I was absolutely able to write it from the perspective of an MC of a feature and a headliner and encapsulate the three echelons. That's amazing. So it seems sounds like this movie, a lot of things aligned at the right time. The 30-mile yes. zone, the writing of the script. How many drafts did you go through on the script, do you think? Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating when I, when I say this. And a draft could mean... A scene, right? Retooling a scene yeah. and keep turning it in. So, I, I mean, I would say somewhere in probably there was the first draft I wrote that went to Vince, and then from there there was a lot of work that went into it. I'd probably say at least at least six, probably seventy five. Seventy five. Yeah. Wow. wow. Okay, so it was just a constant, like you said, bashing constant. it into shape, kind of a thing. Yeah, because it's it's all a house of cards. Once you yeah. tinker. With that, it affects this back third. Yes, Once exactly. With that, it so the good news with our film is that we always knew, I always knew how it was going to end, and I knew that within, that's why it takes place over four days, because in four days, it's really structurally great for a film. Um, and Sunday is where, you know, he, he's got to prove his mettle. So it, structurally, it works out in terms of storytelling by the beats that all the other screenwriters and films you've ever seen. It's sure. like, you know, plot point on page 12, plot point on page 25, 55-year midpoint, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. it all kind of worked out that way. So the ending always worked. Uh, it was our setup that we were having. And that's kind of like the reverse of how it normally goes. Usually you have a great setup. Uh, but the setup, it, it's not that it wasn't bad. It was... Uh, it was it was good, but it just wasn't good enough in terms of helping to pay off the great great ending we had. So we've been tinkering with that, and now we finally got into a great place where our setup is as I believe good as our ending. Killer! So, what yeah. a great feeling that must be to be like ah, oh, got when it. You crack it, yeah. When yeah. you're when you're in the midst of it, and it took months. I mean, fucking months wow. of tinkering and trying and oh that makes sense that's it that's it we got to do it and then you do it and you assemble fifteen and twenty people in a room and they watch it they're like no. I'm like fuck, <laughs> fuck, and it's heartbreaking. Like, what are we missing? What are, you, yeah. what are we doing wrong? And going back and starting all over again, and um, yeah, it's been it's been a hell of a process. But it's every day, even my worst day, when I'm like, fuck, I can't stand this. And there have been many times I'm still like, remember, this is why you fucking moved here. You moved here, in, you know, at 30. You packed your bags. You left Los New York City, and you came here to have this very moment. So shut the fuck up. And work your ass off and don't take this for granted. And 
you know, it, it has been difficult at, at certain points, but that's always the thing I tell myself when I drive home, and I have a 45-minute drive home, so I keep telling myself <laughs> that over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> I have uh, – my second part of that question yeah. is the fifth hour that's coming out. Last yeah. time you were on the show, uh, on this podcast, you were talking about how – you were structuring it differently. Yeah. You were kind of sick of the same old kind of comedy hour routine yep. in terms of setup and how the whole structure is. Are you keeping the fifth hour the oh, yeah. same way you were talking about it before? Yeah, I think actually a- when this film comes out, and hopefully it helps me, and I'm, I'm able to do that next hour, I think it's going to – I think everything, again, happens for a reason. I think it's going to be more resonant when it actually does come out later because Netflix is banging out so many of these hours. And it's just somebody in front of a curtain pontificating for an hour straight. But this way, visually, aesthetically, it's so different. It's going to be so different. And it gave me more time. I'm glad I didn't film it a year ago. I honestly am because had I filmed it a year ago, I would have rushed it before I was filming the movie. Um, I've been able to craft even stronger jokes for it and tie it all together because there is a purpose to it. So basically the hour special is I'm doing a talk show, but I'm the only one on the talk show. So I come out and do 20 minutes of monologue jokes, 20 minutes of panel, 20 minutes of stand-up, but it's all tethered there for a reason. So what it is is that there's some jokes in there that are extremely unpolitically correct, beyond. like, And they're done in a well-crafted way. The goal is to get groans from these jokes, okay? So at the end of the – in the third set, I do this run where I really go a little haywire with the unpolitically correct sure. stuff. Talking about black people, Mexicans, Asian, whatever. And you're getting a good mix of groans and laughs. But then I say, I'm going to reveal a secret. There's been a construct I designed to virtually everything you've heard tonight. It's meant to stoke, provoke, elicit reaction. And I must say on the mark, and, and I talk about them groaning, and then I advocate why you should never groan in a comedy club, and I go through proving a case. So the whole thing is kind of like this, this – I'm proving a theory of like, here's the jokes that you may hear or may not hear. Here's why people are groaning. It's dissecting why people are groaning, and I explain why people are groaning, and then I explain why you shouldn't groan and why you're part of the problem. And it talks about political correctness. And I've heard other comics do it, but I've never heard them – actually set a trap for the audience and then reveal the trap and then reveal why you shouldn't groan. Um, And I I just have never heard it that way. And it was just, it's finally come together in a really satisfactory way where I've never had people at the end of my shows, you know, there was like, oh, it's fucking funny. It was great. You know, just the normal shit, but never like, I really liked what you were saying there. It really meant it like it resonates now. And I'm glad that I had the time to work on it, and I didn't give up on it. So because you kind of did that at the last, uh, the last part of your last special, right? The last part we were of talking last about special, America. Yeah. I think I was that your last special. Yeah, that, that I, I was tethering because of my kids. I think okay. my my son had just been born, and it was very politically divisive time. At Absolutely, that time with, yeah, yeah. With, the, with the impending election with Trump and sure. Hillary, and it was just like very vile social media, everything online. So I ended it that way. But that was never like driving towards okay. an end goal. It was just like, oh, I'll just kind of end it with this, you know, which is kind of fun. But this one, it actually is – it all is connected and weaves towards a conclusion, okay. which, again, most, most stand-up hour specials don't have no, a conclusion. Not at all. They're not A, B, C yeah, with, with an ending. So I, I – you know, It's almost like a movie. It's almost like you're yeah. watching yeah. the ebbs and flows of uh, – and there's a resolution. 
But I've been working with a great comic named Argus Hamilton back in Los Angeles. That's great monologue joke writer. And I even reached out to the um, former head writer of the Jay Leno Tonight Show because he's got crisp, topical jokes. So we took a lot of topical jokes that that are actually evergreen, so they can be played five, ten years from now. Um, and I, I, I believe. By far, it's the best hour I've ever put together, and I'm super excited for it to come out. And I think it's a good representation of, like, this newer version of me post the doc, post the film. It, it, it will um, not devalue, I think, w- the work I've done where it's just like, oh, he's fucking humping a stool. You know, it's not going <laughs> right, right, right. to be that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say... You are a gentleman. We started with that on the thank podcast. You. Thank you again for doing this. Yeah, man. Thank you so this much. Is, uh, thank you, guys. Thank it's you guys nothing but much. a pleasure always talking. Even though you're from Pittsburgh, from Cleveland, we're supposed to... Rust Belt, right? I know, man. This is Rust Belt. They're the same people. Yeah. They're the same folks. We just went a little more. But I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get into it. But you guys are going to... This year, gonna, though. I think, yeah. I think oh. this is the year where the Steelers' stock goes down, the Browns <laughs> come up, and then the rivalry is back. Please. Which I like because That'd I never be bought into the... The Baltimore, it was it was rough and tumble. It was like we're forcing this one. I think the real rivalry is Cleveland, but you just on yeah. paper, it's just nothing was ever happening with you guys. But I think this year, yes, you guys exactly. Are well, I can tell you what, nothing pissed me off more than going to because I go home for Christmas or something to Cleveland, where, where yeah. I was living in the country, and I'd fly home and I'd be like, Dad, let's go to a, a Browns game, or whatever. Not, and they always play the Steelers at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. There's either a game in Pittsburgh or a game in in Cleveland. And there's 90% Steeler, terrible towels flying around yeah. in Cleveland Brown Stadium. I'm like, I hate these motherfuckers. <laughs> Get out of this stadium. You know what I mean? Yeah. But they're, they're, they live in Cleveland. They're just, of course, they're jumping the Trace bandwagon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just, I can't wait. Well, good luck this season. I think yes. you guys are going to have something to be proud of. And I think one of the best 30 for 30s I, I saw was Believe Land. Yes. That was a great one. That was a good one. Really, Most really people, great. I, for me, it was weird. I think we talked about it, Greg. You and I did. But most people didn't know the story of Cleveland. It's so true, too, because every single time anybody mentions any Cleveland sport, they're like, and then there was the shot, and then there was the drive, and then they went, you know, you're like, do you always have to fucking mention that? You know what I mean? Every time we show Germany, they're like. Monday Night Football, you got to see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Monday Night Football, watch. Guaranteed. They will have Mm -hmm. the, well, you know, the Broncos really bent them over in this. You know, you're like, God damn it. Yeah, you'd be up by Johnny Manziel. Yeah, we get it. Fuck. Yeah. Please. <laughs> yeah, they drafted him after talking to a homeless man or whatever that story is. They <laughs> so always follow there. Damn yeah. it. All right. Well, Steve Byrne, uh, obviously, it's steveburn.com. Uh, Steve Byrne Live. Everything Steve I Byrne have Live. is Steve Byrne Live. Twitter, Instagram, okay. and all that stuff. But if you're putting it up, look, Monday, June 3rd, go to YouTube. Always amazing. It'll be available. Um, if you could help me share it, spread the word, all your friends. Uh, if you like documentaries, I think you'll love this one. It's really, really it's fucking. Go- it's fucking good. I really. I'm proud of it. I'm really proud of it. Yeah, that's great. And then the the new movie. It's the opening called, act the opening will come act. out later on this year or early next year. Yeah. Okay. Great. And then come see him here at the Comedy Cellar inside. Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah. Come see uh, the cellar. Uh, he's here tonight, Friday, Saturday, and Saturday. And then I'll be back in July, I believe, with Joel Osborne from the Always Amazing documentary. Joel and I will be here together because Joel's Joel's fiance lives here in Vegas, so he's flying back here and. This is crazy, okay? So his fiance, Joel was Jonathan's road manager. When Joel left, Erica took over for for Joel. No. So way. they both were road managers for Jonathan. And then 
um, when I did the goddamn comedy jam down on Fremont Street about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, um, Joel was in town. I said, Joel, you got to do this show with me. He's one of my best pals. So he invited um, a few people that had worked on Jonathan's shows, and Erica came, and they hit it off that night, and now they're engaged. And, wow. Uh, Are you kidding Joel's going to be wow. here uh, in July with, with me and uh, with Erica. Yeah, so it'll be fun. And she's in it. We, we interviewed her, and we interviewed her before... Uh, yeah, this all went down, so it's kind of crazy. That's crazy. Oh my god! Now I watched a documentary with an, another yeah. lens. Yeah, I'm like, oh, <laughs> someone's giving the side uh, eye. Over there, there she oh, is. No. Oh boy, the heavy hitters. You fucked up, in. man. You had your shot. She's here for years, you motherfucker. <laughs> all right, Steve Burn. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you, guys. This show and more found at SparksRadio.com. Mm-hmm.